Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon, and I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We are both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team, and we're on the podcast to try and break down some of the challenging benefits and compliance issues that are in front of employers. And today, Suzanne, we like to use the podcast to dig in deeper into areas that we may not do so in other communications. So today we're going to focus on the Biden administration's vaccine mandate for employers and more specifically OSHA, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which is an agency we haven't touched on in the past. So we're doing this um, deep dive into OSHA because of the recent vaccine mandate and possible legal challenges to that mandate. We've already produced several resources on the topic and the mandate itself. To recap those, um, first, we delved into this a bit on the last podcast. Uh, We discussed the vaccine mandate and outlined uh, the questions and issues that employers should be thinking about. Of course, we didn't have and and we still don't have many answers to those questions and issues. We're waiting on OSHA to publish more guidance, Um, but we did kind of outline those on the last podcast. So we have that available. We also have a short white paper outlining those same issues for employers to consider Again, without many answers, but at least a roadmap of what to be thinking about. And we do have an article in our last edition of Compliance Corner, which is a bi-weekly newsletter focusing on regulatory and legislative changes. And then we do have a webinar on vaccine mandates generally, but especially focusing on the idea of vaccine surcharge with respect to the group health plan. So those are all available through your NFB broker or on the latest insights page at nfp.com. And overall, we're just waiting for more OSHA guidance on this topic. So with all of that in mind, Suzanne, can you give us a bit more background information on the Biden administration's vaccine mandate and OSHA's involvement as it applies to employers? Right, thank you, Chase. And thank you for running through, for one, that the ETS is not available at this time yet, and also all the various resources that we have that touch on it and what employers should be thinking. But we wanted to look at this from the different aspect of the legal challenges, because that's certainly being discussed in the news. It's something that employers hear and makes them question whether it's going to go into effect or not. So we wanted to kind of take a deeper dive into that. As you alluded to, obviously, we're talking about the September 9th um, uh, proclamation by President Biden when he announced that OSHA would be developing an emergency temporary standard or ETS, as we'll refer to it, that would obligate employers with more than 100 employees to require their employees to be vaccinated against COVID-19 or be tested weekly for COVID-19. Um, it's noted that it would impact 80 million workers in the private sector business, and it would be the second OSHA or COVID-related ETS that OSHA has um, as uh, issued, and it follows the ETS that was adopted in June that was limited to just a healthcare sector, and it was narrowly drafted. Before the June 21st ETS, OSHA had not issued an ETS in 38 years, and it had never cited the danger posed by a communicable disease as a justification for an ETS. And, and notably, the standards that were required by the June 21st ETS that related to healthcare workers included face masks and other you know, PPP and other standards 
but did not go to the extent of including a mandatory vaccination. So I think it's important to say up front that we strive to remain neutral on this podcast. We're not talking about things from a political stance one way or the other. So please don't take anything that we discussed today as in support of or against this mandate. We are purely looking at it from a legal perspective. Right. And you'll hear in the news, right, uh, both sides of the argument that the government can do this or from a different side that they cannot do this. Um, and we also know that there are numerous legal challenges already out there against employers, states, school districts with similar mandates. So we're not going to touch on those today, as you mentioned. Um, we're only going to focus on a challenge to Biden's most recent federal mandate. Um, and so, Suzanne, uh, give us a bit more insight into uh, a legal challenge here. Well, we can certainly expect to see some challenges to the vaccine mandate on constitutional grounds, but federal courts have routinely rejected constitutional challenges related to vaccine mandates, and unless, of course, um, they are discriminatory in nature. But what we want to focus on today is the stronger challenge to the mandate that concerns the validity of the use of the emergency standard. The decision to adopt the rule as an emergency and temporary standard without notice and comment um, will be the focus of legal challenge and ones that would likely be uh, more successful than certainly a constitutional challenge. Um, so we want to dive into it both historically and legally. Um, but first, we'll look at it from a legal perspective and just set the groundwork there. The Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, OSHA Act, gives OSHA the ability to promulgate an ETS that would remain in effect for up to six months without going through the normal rulemaking process. So what is the rulemaking process when we talk about that? Of course, many of you will remember this from you know, the, the enactment of the ACA. Um, all, um, I believe all, or most federal agencies at least, are governed by the Administrative Procedures Act they often have their own specific procedures as well that align. And they are required to provide notice of a proposed rule through publication of notice in the Federal Register so that it's available to the public. The public can read these proposed rules. They must give the public at least 30 days to comment on them. And a, any person may submit a written objection to the proposed standard, or they may request a public hearing on the standard. So that's, that's the context of the normal rulemaking process that an ETS or an emergency temporary standard is um, circumventing. Yeah, so we did get a little bit comfortable and familiar with uh, this idea of uh, rulemaking through the ACA, through the pandemic. Uh, but tell us, uh, just go a little bit deeper there specifically on the ETS process for OSHA. Section C of the OSHA Act gives the authority for OSHA to issue an emergency temporary standard, again, ETS, without going through normal rulemaking processes, and it becomes effective immediately upon publication in the Federal Register unless it states, states a later date, but, but it could be effective as quickly as its publication. But as soon as it's published, OSHA is required to begin their full rulemaking process for a permanent standard. Um, and then that ETS will be superseded by the permanent standard. Allegedly, it's supposed to be promulgated within six months of publishing, but we've certainly seen it take longer. The justification for the ETS process must be based on two determinations. One, that employees are exposed to grave danger. In this context, obviously, the grave danger in the workplace of COVID-19. And two, that the ETS is necessary to protect employees from the danger. So, there's a grave danger determination and a necessity determination that's required in order for the ETS to stand. 
in this context, it's going to be interesting because OSHA will have to answer these questions. What has changed since the pandemic emerged in early 2020 to conclude that at this time, the vac vaccination mandate is ETS is necessary to protect all workers from this virus when, for example, it wasn't necessary in June when the prior ETS was issued for healthcare workers only, um, and also the heightened standard of the vaccine mandate, whereas the healthcare workers were only subject to uh, a different, a lower standard in terms of just mask requirements and other PPP equipment. Why are millions of workers currently working for employers with fewer than 100 employees not also presented with this grave danger and in need of this protection that's provided by the ETS? So OSHA is likely going to cite the rising infection rates, particularly among unvaccinated persons, higher transmissibility of the Delta variant, and resistance to receiving the vaccine as to reasons why the ETS is necessary. But again, we'll have to see what they lay out in their preamble. Yeah, and so how, how does OSHA determine that employees are in grave danger? I mean, you kind of outlined a few of the factors there that maybe they would consider that maybe OSHA would be arguing, but is there like a, an actual definition of what grave danger means? Yeah, this is the real rub because there is no definition of grave danger in the statutes or the regulation. When you look to congressional intent and legislative history, it doesn't show any um, specific definition, but it does say in quotes that the ETS process is not to be utilized to circumvent the regular standard setting process. So it alludes that it should be used sparingly, but yet it doesn't provide real clarification as to how grave danger should be determined. Yeah, maybe it is helpful on their end to have a bit more of, uh, of a vague definition so that they can encapsulate different types of dangers, right? Um, and I think we'll see some of those different types as you get into some of these court challenges. Um, but without a statutory definition and without clear congressional intent, because that's usually the next thing you go to if you don't have that statutory language, what do we have as guidance when it comes to you know, defining what is a grave danger? Well, you alluded to court challenges, and we can certainly, you know, if you do look at court challenges, again, unfortunately, in this context, there's not um, clarification as to that definition. We have a little bit more clarification I can hit on, but but not as to how grave danger is defined or how it should be uh, specifically determined. Okay. So before we get into those prior court challenges, let's first look at and talk about the historical use of an ETS. I think that will help put the court challenges into perspective. So how often has OSHA promulgated an ETS in the past? I think this is so interesting because it's been used very rarely. Only um, prior to the pandemic, nine times um, an ETS was issued, the most recent one being 1983. So it's been some time since they've issued an ETS. And even more rare is an ETS that survives a legal challenge. So courts have been, appear to have been really reluctant to allow OSHA to, to bypass the normal rulemaking process. And some have even equated this ETS process as an agency-created legislation, which we, knew is, we know is not the purpose for um, federal agencies. Of uh, the prior challenges, there have been six um, six of the prior ETSs prior to the pandemic. And that was, again, there, prior to the pandemic, there were nine ETSs that were issued. So six of the nine were challenged in court. And of those six, only one went into effect in full. There was one that went into effect in part, but not in full. So we're living in a, in a unique time with the pandemic. The prior ETSs dealt with risks that were very different from a pandemic. Um, we don't know, you know how that will impact things going forward. 
yeah, everything is so different and strange and unique in the pandemic environment. And so you could see that maybe being a way to distinguish from the past and one for six, as far as uh, successful ETSs is not a great batting average. So you can kind of see already up against the odds, uh, but yes, different situation can definitely yield different results. But let's um, let's get some insight now by looking at these prior challenges. I think that will help uh, everybody understand how courts will go about evaluating OSHA's authority to implement rules through this ETS. So uh, start us off with uh, a couple of these challenges. Yeah, I'll run through a couple of them. But as you said, one in six is not a great batting edge average and probably why they haven't used this process since that time, because it has mm -hmm. been. Uh, struck down so many times by the courts. But the last challenge was in 1984 related to OSHA's second emergency rule regulating worker exposure to asbestos. And that could have had some impact on um, allowing the ETS process to not go forward. But it was issued well after the risks of lung cancer, mesothelioma, and gastrointestinal cancer associated with asbestos was widely known and accepted. And it was intended to further limit the worker exposure while OSHA was already engaged in notice and comment rulemaking process. Um, that they were doing to you know, establish permanent standards. So one aspect of the decision is noteworthy because the court stated that the gravity of danger is a policy decision committed to OSHA, not the court. So the court was reluctant to step in. It's appeared to provide deference to the agency and what they thought was a grave uh, gravity of danger or grave danger. But the standard set forth in prior cases certainly seems to limit that deference. So prior cases have stated that OSHA's preamble to an ETS, and that's where they, the OSHA will outline their justification for the ETS process, must provide substantial evidence, end quote, such that a reasonable mind might accept it as adequate to support the same conclusion. So to put this into context, this substantial evidence requirement is heightened um, over and above what a court would normally look at when they are uh, reviewing an agency's rulemaking under your standard arbitrary and capricious standard that's used in normal rulemaking. So again, substantial evidence is a heightened standard and requires the court to take a harder look at OSHA's actions um, when it's reviewing uh, whether they're able to actually issue a rule under this standard or not. So back to the uh, asbestos challenge that I mentioned back in 1984, the court did not rule on the grave danger determination. Instead, it looked to whether the emergency standard was necessary to protect employees from such danger and they determined that OSHA did not provide enough evidence for its claim that workers would die because of exposure to asbestos during the six-month life of the ETS. Gives you some context as to what they're looking at. Yeah, right. So they're, at least in that case, they're deferring a little bit more on whether this is truly dangerous, but focusing more on whether the, um, the standard or the requirement that they're putting in place will actually uh, is actually necessary to protect from that danger. Uh, in so that time frame. Right, right. So tell us a, uh, about a few more of the other unsuccessful challenges and, the, and then we'll get to the successful one. Okay, well, this next one gets to, again, whether there was substantial evidence, as I mentioned previously. In 1973, OSHA issued an ETS regulating worker exposure to organophosphorus pesticides to limit its use as a substitute from the already banned pesticide DDT. And the ETS relied heavily on a Senate report that addressed the misuse of pesticides generally, but the court said this was not substantial evidence. Um, and it said that OSHA failed to provide enough evidence that this specific pesticide in question 
presented a grave danger to workers. So they said, look, you know, you're, if you're going to come to try to use this ETS process, you've got to do more than just provide a Senate report that generally relates to this issue. You know, you've got to provide real substantial evidence related scientific evidence that it does present a grave danger. So you can see, I mean, as we've talked about, OSHA has been unsuccessful more times than it's been successful when it's issued an ETS. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about that one OSHA success story. Tell us about um, that case and maybe why it was successful as compared to the others. An ETS related to acrylonitril, which is a vinyl cyanide, was upheld by the court um, with the challenge being stayed or vacated. There wasn't a lot of substantive information on the court's decision to deny the stay, but we can presume that OSHA provided sufficient scientific evidence that the chemical used in rubber manufacturing was putting employees in grave danger after there were several studies that linked exposure to the chemical to um, higher rates of cancer. So despite a challenge from manufacturers, the court did allow this rule to go into effect. So we do have one successful challenge um, to the use of ETS. Okay, so um, A plus for your pronunciations, first of all, these are very difficult words. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so, so it's been nearly 40 years since a court has really had to consider the validity of an OSHA ETS. And obviously, we've kind of highlighted that we're in a different type of situation and context here with the pandemic, with the virus being potentially what is being called the grave danger. What are legal ex experts really saying about a legal challenge to this particular uh, mandate in this particular ETS? Well, it's very likely that the courts will view the coming ETS with the same skepticism with which they viewed the benzene, the asbestos, and those other risks that we discussed. It, it won't be enough for OSHA to show that COVID-19 is harmful to workers or that it's killed you know, thousands of Americans. Um, instead, they're going to have to show that more than a year into the pandemic with the vaccine rates rising and other precautions already in place that workers are still at a risk of grave harm from the disease and that um, this specific ETS is necessary to keep the workers safe. So some are going to argue that a nationwide vaccine mandate is not necessarily where spikes in COVID-19 cases have varied considerably by region. But if we look at just, you know, the, the preamble to the June ETS, OSHA provided significant evidence and argument in that, in preparation for that ETS. So we can presume that OSHA will, will be prepared to address these questions and will to be, be able to demonstrate that the regulatory action would eliminate the grave danger and is necessary at this time for the population or workers at issue. As I mentioned, OSHA is likely to cite that there's a rising infection rate that we have um, this new Delta variant and other variants that are on the move that we have um, many unvaccinated persons and there's a resistance to receiving the vaccine and all of that combined creates a unique time and requirement for this ETS to be put into place. But OSHA will likely have to address the fact that there was an unpublished draft of um, OSHA's June ETS that was originally planned to cover all workers in all industries that they backed off of and only related it to healthcare workers and then only to the extent of masks, for example, they didn't go so far as a vaccine. So they're going to be have to be able to say, so why are non-healthcare workers in greater danger at this time requiring greater measures than the healthcare workers were back in June? Um, and again, please don't take anything that we're saying right now as in support of or against the mandate itself. We're just truly looking at what the challenges are that you're likely to hear. Right. Um, but I will leave you with one kind of interesting fact that puts this into perspective and why you can see why the ETS process would be beneficial. 
In 2012, the Government Accountability Office examined 59 significant standards that OSHA issued between 1981 and, and 2010, and it found that the average time between initial consideration of a standard and its promulgation was nearly eight years. And even after they had published a notice of proposed rulemaking in the Federal Register, there was an average of more than three years that elapsed before the standard was actually finalized. So you can see why they desire that ETS process in this context. Yeah, right. That makes sense. And, and in most situations, you want to have the time to be able to really think through everything and make sure you're uh, properly and, and taking into consideration all of the comments and different positions on whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Um, but it also, this particular situation kind of re-highlights the uh, stress and the uh, quick and uh, the quick responses that may be necessary in this particular environment. Um, so all of it leads to a lot of complexion, a lot of confusion, and a lot of us wishing that we had more perfect answers. Um, and so until we sort of work through them, we don't. And I guess one thing to re-highlight as we end this podcast is that as of now, we do not actually have the ETS published. Is that correct, Suzanne? That's correct. It's, it's imminent. It, it should come out at any time. It'll be very interesting. Again, focus on that preamble and see how they support the ETS process. Right. Okay. In the meantime, we will continue to monitor this. We'll continue to monitor um, the ETS itself and uh, legal challenges to that as they unfold. And so I'm sure we'll be back on this topic either through the podcast or our other NFP resources. But Suzanne, thank you so much for walking us through this. This is really helpful in understanding the process and potential legal challenges and the arguments on both sides. And, and uh, it'll be exciting to watch watch it all unfold. Anything, sure. else, uh, anything else in closing here? No, as we like to say, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining us today. That's a wrap. Thanks for joining. <laughs>